Isn't it good to be in the presence of the Lord? So good. Thank you, Bethany, wherever you are back there. Thanks for leading us in. Bethany was a part of our first apprentice cohort last year. We had nine apprentices, and this year we've got 15 going through our apprenticeship with us. And it's a great joy to see the call of God on these young lives. Well, the person coming next is no stranger to probably anybody in this room, but uh, we're really grateful to welcome Dave. Uh, we like to say our Pastor Dave because, uh, as many of you know, a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity and the grace to take a nine-month sabbatical, and uh, it was so cool. The day that I went on sabbatical, the Sunday that I started sabbatical, was the first day that Sam came. Uh, to Bethel Christian Fellowship, Minneapolis. So my last day was his first day. And um, and I literally, really, I just turned the keys over to Dave and said, take her away, driver, it's yours. You've got, this is your house. And I knew that I could do that because of my deep respect and trust in this man. We've been through a lot together. We've walked through a lot together. And I knew I was turning the house over into really good hands. And when I came back, it was better than when I left it. <laughs> and that's the honest truth. And uh, so I'm eternally grateful for Dave. He, he was here twice a month, you know, two weeks out of every month for nine months. He spent just pastoring and loving on this body. So he comes in here and, man, everybody just... Loves Dave. <laughs> Love him right back. So, um, so grateful for his life. And he is a true pastor and a pastor, two pastors. Pastored for 35 years, various fellowship churches, all kinds of different kinds of settings and situations. Now with Great Commission Media, which is uh, a very creative media evangelism that happens all over the world. Um, where God's opening doors, it's remarkable. Find out more. Um, but he's coming this afternoon to bring us the pastoral voice in this. We need to hear each of these voices. Has anybody else been, I mean, I'm just like getting filled up like, so uh, thank you, Jim. Yeah. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Dale. Thank you, Ned, in advance tomorrow. And thank you, Dave. Would you welcome with me, Dave Oak? Well, good afternoon, everybody. It's uh, good to be here, I think. Um, <laughs> no, it is great to be here. And uh, uh, you can turn to Ezekiel 34. We're going to get there in just a few minutes. Um, this is when, when Pastor Jim asked me to take the pastoral voice. I... I've never preached from this text. This, this is the first time I've ever spoken from this text, and afterwards you'll probably say, yeah, we could tell. <laughs> you know? But um, um, I felt impressed to go here, and so we're, we're going to do it. Um, I recognize there are different applications for different churches, for different pastors, because of gifting, because of calling, but also because of size. 
<clears throat> pastoring 50 is different than 500 or different than 5,000. So I understand that when you're in different places, um, you administrate the issues that we'll be talking about in different ways. And, and um, um, so, so I understand as well that Ezekiel 34 is, is a window. It's just one window that you're observing pastoral ministry through. So there's many other windows. This is, so this isn't, this isn't the all-encompassing view of pastoral ministry. We're not even going to try to tackle that. That's a huge, huge issue that we could probably spend months on. But I do have a passion for pastoral ministry. I still do. I've been with Great Commission now for, well, I started my sixth year now. Um, but I still feel very much connected to pastoral ministry, and I, I preach pretty well in a different church every Sunday, but I, I, I feel like God has given me opportunity just to minister to the body of Christ wherever I am in a pastoral way. And uh, it's been a joy and a privilege. And I, I loved pastoring a local church when I was doing it for 35 years. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to roar through this material because I, I, I want us after break. I've, I've got another word that I really feel like the Lord wants me to share. Um, so we're going to take about 35 minutes on this till about 3.30. We'll take our break and then we'll come back for the last part. Um, so you... You have notes there. You've got all the scriptures. You've got all the stuff there. So um, the guts are there, you know, and uh, we'll, just, we'll just roar through some of this. Um, let's pray. Father, I thank you, God, every time I have opportunity to share your word. I feel gratefulness and uh, responsibility all at the same time. Lord, we understand that we're not here to just speak into the air, but God, we want to speak your words in a way that ministers to those who are here this afternoon. And Lord, I just pray that as we focus on the ministry of pastor for a brief period of time this afternoon, that you will speak to us from your word and by your spirit, Lord, in Jesus' name. Uh, just a little... In your notes, it's there, but just, just a quick background on Ezekiel. Ezekiel's kind of an interesting guy. His name means God strengthens, and, and God did strengthen Israel in captivity through Ezekiel. Um, here is a young man who was a priest, the son of a priest, one of 10,000 Hebrews taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar in 597. This is the second group that comes. Daniel is the first group that happened eight years previous in 605 B.C. It's a young man. Now, as I'm getting to be an old dog, I appreciate the fact that God uses young people. Yeah. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Here's a guy that's probably 25 years of age um, when he's taken captive as a young priest. Uh, he's married. His wife dies um, d during the days of the final siege of Jerusalem 10 years later. Okay, um, So when Ezekiel's about 35, his wife dies. Um, this, this young priest receives a prophetic call in captivity, 593 B.C. We know all this because Ezekiel tells us <laughs> the dates and times and all of this. So 30 years of age, young man receives not only a, a, a priestly call, but now a prophetic call. And, and, and he functions in that role for about 22 years. Um, Jeremiah 
is, uh, is a contemporary of Ezekiel, an older prophet priest um, that actually was, was in Jerusalem and, and actually was there during the destruction in uh, 586 B.C. Eighty-seven times in Ezekiel, Ezekiel is referred to as the son of man, as a son of man. It's in the ilk of, of, of Psalm 8 where, um, where David says, what is man that you are mindful of him? the son of man that you should visit him. So, so it's, it's not son of man as in Jesus, but it's the son of man in the context of humility, that, that, that Ezekiel saw himself in a context of humility, of weakness, of, of dependency upon God. Um, one of the most favorite expressions that Ezekiel uses is the hand of the Lord was upon me. And I, I just want you to stand for a minute. We're, you know, we might do this a couple times. So come on, come on, just, just stand with me. And what I want you to do, Woman to woman, man to man, I want you to find someone and I want you to impart upon them right now. Um, here it says, the hand of the Lord was upon me. And basically what I want you to do is I want you to impart a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I, I understand that oftentimes you can come to even a small conference as this is and, and, and never get ministered to. <laughs> Nobody ever touches you. Nobody ever prays for you. You come in heavy, you come in nearing, needing to hear the voice of God. You're, you're coming in today and you need something fresh from God. And, and it, there's been times when I've walked out of a conference and felt a little bit discouraged. Yes, I heard the word of the Lord congregationally, but I didn't receive it personally. And so right now, men and women, let's take just a couple minutes and, and lay your hands on somebody and have them lay, your hand, have them lay their hands on you and impart the blessing of God that the hand of the Lord would be upon all of us in a new and a fresh way. Praise God. Praise God. Come here. Come here. Lay your hands on
Lord, I thank you for gifting me. I thank you for calling me. I thank you, God, for what you've placed upon me. And I pray that it would come to fulfillment. Fulfillment. In the name of Jesus, may the hand of the Lord rest mighty upon me. In the name of Jesus. 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 May the hand of the Lord be upon him as never before. Never before. Hallelujah. other in the name of the Lord is significant and powerful. Thank you for impartation for both of us. Thank you, God. 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 Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. God bless you. You may be seated. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Ezekiel 34 begins by saying, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to say to them, and then it goes on from there. Um, and, and, and this is not going to be a negative word <laughs> today. Sounds like it, doesn't it? Uh, but but uh, it is, it is, this is, this is God speaking concerning leadership and, and concerning shepherd leadership, all right? And uh, um, uh, we, we see here, the significance of shepherd leadership in the mind of God, in the heart of God. Uh, because as, as, as Brother Steve, who shared just earlier today, just a few minutes ago, uh, God is concerned about people. He's more interested in people than he is in, in your success. You know, we, we need to always keep that in mind. God's got the big picture in mind, and, and you're not in the center of that. How many understand that? Yeah, okay, yeah. Good for all of us to know that we're not in the center of it. Um, so he's talking to shepherds here, and, and, you know, biblically, as you look at the whole context of shepherds, it's, it's both natural and spiritual leadership. In 2 Samuel 5, uh, uh, it speaks of Saul as being the shepherd of my people. So, so it's, it's natural and spiritual leadership, but here it seems that he's speaking more to spiritual shepherds. Um, number one, God. Is, is referred to a number of times as, as, as shepherd. Genesis 48, 15, the God who has been my shepherd all my life. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. The God who has been my shepherd all my life. Psalm 23, we all know it. The Lord is my shepherd. 
Psalm 80. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. Isaiah 40, verse 11. He will take, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. Gently lead those with young. That's that's God's view of what it means to be a shepherd. Jesus, spoken many times of being shepherd. Matthew chapter 2, Bethlehem, uh, when, uh, from, from Micah chapter 5, when, when Herod was looking for, for what was going on in Bethlehem. For you, shall come, uh, for, for you shall come a ruler who will shepherd, some, some translations say rule, but, but the word actually there is shepherd my people Israel. John chapter 10, probably at least five times Jesus refers himself uh, as, as the shepherd. Uh, I am the good shepherd. Um, that's verse 11, also verse 14. And this other, the whole chapter is, is about the whole shepherd ministry. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. The great shepherd of the sheep. As, as Moses re- receives the news that he would not lead Israel into the land of promise, what, what is Moses' request? It's found in Numbers chapter 27. Verse 16 and 17. Let the Lord appoint a man over the congregation that the congregation of the Lord may not be a sheep that have no shepherd, not no warrior. It's interesting. He doesn't doesn't primarily see the need of a warrior or an administrator or even a prophet or a priest, but a shepherd. I find that really, really interesting. Um... Paul's words um, in, in, in Acts, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Um, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Paul uses that word intentionally. In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or shepherds to care for the church of God. Okay? So, so you, you are called, in my view, pastorally, primarily, to care for the church of God, to be, to be a shepherd of the church of God. And, 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 and 1 Peter chapter 5, another significant New Testament perspective on the whole issue of shepherd is, is, so I exhort the elders among you as fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly, not as God would, uh, at, uh, but, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples of the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So, so, so when we talk about when we talk about um, shepherd ministry, we're talking about first of all the first issue that 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 God deals with 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 the shepherds of Israel is that they were feeding themselves; they were not feeding the flock. And so, ultimately, um, and and the whole the whole word the word feed the word shepherd can be used. Uh, it's it's the same word in the Hebrew. It mean, it's it's exactly the same word. So so shepherd feed same thing, all right. And 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 the context of of shepherding is is uh, 
I got that this in the notes, but it's it's association, it's protection, it's provision, it's responsibility. So it, it makes no difference how big your flock is. You you there's there's an issue a shepherd has relationship to the sheep. There's association. And I know that means different things, like I said before. You know, a congregation of 50 is different than 500 to 5,000. I mean, you have, you have to delegate, as, as Dale was saying yesterday, there's, there's this issue of delegation that has to happen. But, but it, is, it is his pastor, even though it's a huge church, what, over 10,000 or whatever it is, uh, it, it is the senior pastor's responsibility to shepherd the flock. Now, he's not going to be able to do it all. Right? All right. But, but it's his responsibility to make sure that, that the sheep have association, that they have protection. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute. That they have provision, which, which is actually the feed context. And, and there's this ultimate sense biblically where, as a shepherd, you are responsible for the sheep. And one day you will give an account. When I stand before God, when you stand before God, we will give an account for the sheep we shepherded. Hebrews 13 makes that very clear. And, and the whole, I, could, I could link up with James 3 with the teacher issue as well because there's, there's, this, there's this dual ministry that often happens with pastors where you're, where you're shepherding, but you're also obviously feeding. And, and, and so this area of feeding, and, and we, could, we could take time to do it, but you've got it there. 1 Timothy chapter 1, chapter 4, chapter 6, 2 Timothy chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. Um, there, there is this, there's this whole issue of rightly dividing the word of truth, rightly hand, grappling with scripture, okay, of, of, of wrestling with the word of God, with, with, with research and prayer and intercession and going deeper. Your use of the word of God in the, in the, in the relationship to your congregation, you become a seawall against the flood of false teaching. And m- much of the, of the false teaching that's, that's, that's happened in the body of Christ you know, really falls on the, on the shoulders of shepherds who are not rightly dividing the word of truth, who are not dealing with tough issues, who are not grappling with the issues that, you know, we can all deal with the simple issues, but there are complex things that people deal with in their lives. And if we do not deal with them as shepherds, if we are not willing to go there and, 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 and actually, actually touch on those things and ask the hard questions and deal with issues, we're missing it. And by the way, you as a shepherd, there are times as a shepherd, you have to be protective of your flock. There are times where you have to strap on the sword and go to battle on behalf of your people. And, and frankly, there are some shepherds that I, that I observe wimp out. The battle comes and, and they don't want to get dirty. They don't want to get involved. They don't want to step into the mix of the battle. They'd rather stand on the sidelines and, and, and be a Monday morning quarterback. You know? and, and the fact is God has not called you to be a Monday morning quarterback. As pastor, there are times, yes, you are a warrior. At times, you have to strap on the sword and say, I will not allow this to happen in this house. 
and uh, you know you you've got it there. Uh, Jesus talks about the last days in Mark chapter 13, 21 to 23. You know, this, this uprising of, of false Christ and false prophets. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 11. Peter talks about it in 2 Peter 2. Jude talks about it in Jude 3 and 4. And so, and so the closer we get to the return of Christ, there is the reality that shepherds need to be courageous. Shepherds at times need to be the last man standing, you know? And it's wonderful. I, in, in, in churches that I've pastored to have guys that have been like David's mighty man who stood with me. I mean, that's it's wonderful, isn't it? To have guys that, that you know got your back, that don't have a knife to go on your back, but they have your back. They're there to protect you. I was in a church recently in Michigan, and big guy, probably six foot five, Used to be number three in the world as a cage fighter, and and uh, I looked at him, and he said, Pastor, "Pastor Dave," he said, "I don't know what my ministry is." I said, "Hey, I know what your ministry is." <laughs> I said, "You protect your pastor. You have his back. You stand behind him." Tears started streaming down his face, you know, because that's his heart. That's who he is, you know. It's wonderful to have those guys. And, and I, I appreciate having guys who stand with you. And so there's, there's this whole issue of dealing with tough issues, of, of protecting the sheep from poison. And there's not only the poison of false doctrine, but the poison of, of, of even uh, the, the extreme right issues that, that, that are nauseating that can come out of the church. I, I, someone said this to me just, just the other day, right from this congregation, it was James actually, with tears in his eyes. He said, you know, he said, just recently I heard somebody say, and it just pierced my heart. He said, I heard somebody say, God laughs when fags die. You know? Doesn't that pierce your heart? You know? Is that the body of Christ? Is that the heart of Jesus? Is that the heart of a shepherd? I don't think so. I think it's just the opposite from that. I think God is calling us to something different. But you need to lead. And I, I must say, listen. <laughs> I overheard a conversation the other day. It was not a conversation to me. It was a conversation with someone else. It was a pastor talking to one of his leaders. And I probably will end up calling this leader eventually <laughs> on this. But they were talking about some issue and and the pastor said, you know, he said, he said, I am so busy with church that I only have an hour or two a week to prepare for Sunday. And I'm thinking, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> we need to understand that God has called us to not give pablum. We, we are called to feed the flock of God. You are responsible to feed the flock of God. You are responsible to give them fresh bread every week. You are responsible to hear from God. That doesn't take a half hour. It's important that we, that we uh, recognize the passion for the scriptures. The passion of, of whether, it's, whether it's with 25. It makes no difference if it's 25 people or 2,500 people. The reality is, is that we have responsibility to not treat lightly 
The high and holy calling of breaking the scriptures and feeding God's people. And so I, I just want to call you to, uh, to, to a new and a fresh calling of, 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 of recognizing that God has called you to, to study and to pray and to discern and to proclaim and to protect and to lead with courage. So that was important to God. The second thing that's important to God is strengthening the weak. Those who are faint, those who are weakly, those who are sickly. What are we to do with them? We are to strengthen them. We are to encourage them. We are to, to cause them to, prepay, to, to prevail. We are to be Barnabases to them. We are to be sons of consolation. That's, that's a part of pastoral ministry, is coming alongside those who are weak. Isaiah 35 gives us a picture where, where um, the whole issue of, of strengthening the weak actually builds faith. I, let me just read it. Isaiah 35, verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an, have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. In what context? In the context of consoling those who are weak. God has called us to that. Acts chapter 20, verse 35 Paul says, you must help the weak. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Romans 15, 1 Corinthians 1, God chooses the weak. <laughs> Interesting. And, and, and 1 Corinthians 8 says that when you cause a weak brother to stumble, you're, you're actually sinning against Christ. And so there's this area of, of, of sometimes we in a pastoral position can... can can have a mindset where, where we almost despise the weak, where we look down on the weak, where we say, you know, what's their problem? You know, get on the bus. We're going somewhere. If you can't get on the bus, too bad. We're not going to help you. But the scripture says that you are called as a shepherd to strengthen the weak. Number three, you're called to heal the sick. And we've heard a lot about the supernatural in this conference, and this is certainly a part of it. It was a part of Jesus' call to his disciples in Luke 9. It was, it was a part of the expectation of the New Testament church to speak the word of bold, with, with boldness in Acts chapter 4, to stretch out your hand to heal so that signs and wonders would be performed in the name of Jesus. So, so, so there's, this, there's, there's this expectation of the miraculous, of the supernatural. It was established as a part of elder pastoral ministry in James chapter 5. Is anyone sick? Let them call for the elders. Let them, let them anoint them with oil. Pray the prayer of faith, and the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them. Heal the sick. <laughs> I was talking to a couple guys here at the conference, and, and, and just, just the frustration of not seeing... Some of that happened, huh? And, and, and for all of us, what does it do? It drives us to our knees. It says, oh God, we need you. 
We need you to come on the scene. We need you to intervene in our situation here. We need to see you minister powerfully. Number four, bind up the injured. Those who are violently wrecked and crushed and shattered. That's what it means. People that need to be bandaged. People that need to be bound up. People that, that, that have, have, uh, have uh, sockets that are dislocated. Shoulders that are dislocated out of, out of their sockets. Put back into place. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus said, Isaiah 61, to bind up the brokenhearted. It's the ministry of a shepherd. Be sensitive to those who have been shattered. To recognize the calling of God. To restore, as Galatians 6 tells us, to restore in a spirit of meekness. Number five, to bring back those who have strayed. I, I find this so interesting. Matthew 18, Luke 15, Luke 19, John 10, over and over and over and over again, Jesus talks about going out as shepherds, going out as shepherds, leaving the 90 of nine, being aware of lost sheep, going out after lost sheep. You know, instead of saying, well, hey, they're not here on Sunday morning, Okay. It's the end of my responsibility. No, I, I mean, the scripture is clear. Jesus makes it clear that the ministry of a shepherd involves going out, leaving the 99, going out after lost sheep. And, and, and if we lose sight of that aspect of pastoral ministry, we're losing sight of, of what is really important to Jesus. And it's in this context in John chapter 10 that Jesus makes the distinction between a shepherd and a hireling. A hireling is one who will not go out. <laughs> a hireling is the guy who says, I don't need to do that. That's not my job. I remember years ago, my, the, the first place I, I ever was in ministry, I'm sure... The pastor told me this, did it on purpose, just as a reminder to, to me. But, but um, Cornelius Wrenches is his name. He's in his late 90s now. And he was an AG pastor, but was pastoring an independent church, and, and I was his youth pastor. And uh, one day he told me the story that one youth pastor he'd had previously, one day it had been snowing, and Pastor Wrenches was out scooping the sidewalk, and... and uh, the new young youth pastor come driving in. And, and so Brother Ranch just said, uh, grab a shovel and help me. He says, I've not been called to shovel snow. I've been called to preach the gospel. <laughs> and it wasn't long till he was preaching the gospel somewhere else. You know? So, you know, I, I mean, Jesus says, you want to know if you're a real shepherd? You want to know that? Then... You're somebody that's willing to get out there and go after lost sheep. Not just sit in your office and wait for the sheep to come in. Some of those that desperately need help will never come in. And you can't do it all. I know that. I'm not asking you to do it all. Large churches, you do very little of that. But but even, even pastors of large churches need to exercise this gift, this part of the calling of going after lost sheep. 
And God has called us to that. How do we shepherd? Do we do it with force? Do we do it with violence? Do we do it with harshness? Do we do it with severity, with cruelty, with domination, with ruling over God's people, with treading them down? First Peter makes clear that when we as pastors do that, what the result of that is the sheep is scattered. They're scattered. We think they're scattered because they're unspiritual. <laughs> or they just can't take the word of the Lord. But many times they're scattered because we've treated them harshly. I remember years ago, I will never forget this. Years ago, my first church out on Vashon Island, out in Puget Sound in Washington. And, and you know, this was hippie country, and this was like 1972 to 79, and, and Vashon Island was all, you know, pretty well a huge chunk of the island was people that were growing pot and making pottery and raising goats and, and driving microbuses. And, um, and, but it was really fun. Colleen and I were young, and, and, and we had a lot of fun and saw a number of people come to Christ, and we had some, I got some amazing stories about weddings for, for hippies with the, with the blue haze of marijuana in the air. And uh, we had some, some, some neat experiences. But, you know, um, while we were there, we saw some people coming to Christ. It was wonderful. And I was sitting in this guy's, this guy's living room. Excuse me, in his kitchen. He was a single man. I was sitting in his kitchen, and I was having a, a, a Bible study with him. And we were going over something, and I'd gone over it with him like about three times. And he still wasn't getting it. And I'm thinking, come on, man. This isn't that difficult. You know? And, and, and he wasn't, and, and all of a sudden I got angry. And I hit the table just like that. And that's all I did. Once. Boom. And I lost him. And he never came back. And I will never forget that one event of allowing my emotions to get a hold of me and not treating him with respect and honor in spite of the circumstances and situations. And, and, and I lost that guy because I was not leading him as a shepherd at that moment. I was trying to drive him a particular direction. And God has not called us to that. He's not called us to that at all. What is it that transforms a hireling into a true shepherd? What is it that causes a shepherd to have a passion to associate with and to protect and to provide for and to have responsibility for the flock? What is it that drives a shepherd to strengthen the weak and heal the sick and go after lost sheep? What is it that consumes a shepherd to even be willing to lay down his own life for the sheep? We don't do any of this very well naturally. I think what it comes down to is Paul talks about it in Romans 5 when he says, and it, and it has to do with also gifting and calling, obviously, but he says in Romans chapter 5, he says, because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians chapter five, Second Corinthians chapter 5 says, for the love of Christ 
impels us, propels us, controls us, moves us forward. Not love for Christ, but the love of Christ. And I'm, I'm aware in my life, and I'm aware probably also in your life, that there is this, this constant need of impartation. I need regularly the impartation of the love of God to be poured into my heart by the Holy Spirit that will then enable me to shepherd as God shepherds, as Jesus shepherds, as he's calling us to shepherd. Father, I thank you, God, today for the high and holy calling of shepherds, pastors. There's a lot of stuff that pastors do that nobody knows about, nobody sees. They don't, they don't get packed on, patted on the back by anybody. Nobody, nobody understands. But God, you see them. You see them, Lord, that they are not functioning as hirelings, but as shepherds. They have a passion to associate with and protect and feed the sheep. They are driven to strengthen the weak and heal the sick and go after lost sheep and even to lay down their own life for the sheep, even as you did in such an absolute way for all of us. Lord, I pray for every shepherd in this room, every pastor in this room. Lord, we would embrace the calling that you have called us to and help us to discern and to discover what that means, how we do it in, amongst our flock, how we do these important areas of ministry that were important to God. Maybe it's not very important to us, but it was important to God. And may, may it become a passion for us, Lord. May we not simply be passionate about what we enjoy about pastoral ministry. God, give us a passion for those things that you are passionate about. <laughs> Work it within our hearts by your Holy Spirit today, I pray, Lord. Thank you, God. Before we, uh, just before we go to a break time here, I just, can you get in just kind of groups of threes and just take a moment to pray for each other in your pastoral calling, your pastoral ministry. Just pray what's ever on your heart to pray. Express whatever's on your heart to express to two other people in a circle of three. And... Uh, Let's just pray for one another that God will help us to fulfill our calling as shepherds of the flock. Hallelujah.
fulfill my part. Anyway, he always, he's like, it's hard to win an argument with him. Uh, I, I think we need to equip people to intelligently defend the faith and invite people. And then, you know, th- what I mean by this is there's so much intellectualism that you are going to, in your process of witnessing, people go, what about the dinosaurs? Well, better have an answer about the dinosaurs. Uh, what about this? What about that? What about, you know? And uh, we need to, isn't it in the Bible where, where Paul tells people that we need to be defend the faith? It is. He, he said that's part of the equipping of the, the disciple. So uh, we got to work on this and then invite people into the kingdom of Christ. Again, it's a proposal. There's no pressure with the gospel. Just... God loves you as much as he loves me. Jesus died for you just as much as he died for you. If you want to, you can have this relationship with God too. It's wonderful. I'll, I'll bear witness. And then we get, have to explain how. That's when we get down to the basic kerygma, the basic gospel. And, uh, you know, so all these things. If, if we had if we had three, 400 people who had a Swiss Army knife approach, they could do all these things. And they just walk out into the world, and they're just looking. Who, to meet? Who, who is it that's a skeptic? Well, let me tell you what Jesus did. I got an x-ray, the before, the after. Explain that. Um, they got questions about this or that. Well, I, I can, let's talk about that. Or I can give you a book at least. I know how to give you a book to talk about that and work through that. And, and this is equipping. You see, in any sports team, what do you do in training camp? You work on the fundamentals. You work on blocking and tackling, and you get yourself into shape. And then you go out in the game. You don't think about those things. They're so much a part of you. These are the things about the word of God. When we talk about presenting the word, these are the fundamentals that I should just have in my pocket like a Swiss Army knife. I can pull anyone out anytime I need it in the instance I am. That's our job as pastors, is to do this. Um, just one of the things, when I started to realize that a lot of our people were so quiet, they weren't good witnesses, not because their hearts weren't right, but because they just so often felt embarrassed because they were unequipped to deal with situations. Um, you know, one thing, obviously, I'm sure you do too, we just teach the Bible. I, I've become converted, is I am now a, uh, you know, verse-by-verse guy now, um, go through a whole book. The nice thing is you, 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 you don't have to avoid anything. You know, I, I did First Corinthians and got to the point about sexual immorality, you know, three chapters, juicy. <clears throat> we, had a, we had a marriage revival. We had seven couples living together when they heard just the scriptures being taught, came up and said, we're, we're living outside of God's will and asked to be married. And then at the weddings... Two more, two more couples got convicted. So we had a nine-couple marriage revival. And you know what was really cool was they, the, in two instances, the guys came up crying, saying, God's convicted me. I'm, a, I'm living outside his will. I love that. I love to see guys cry. <laughs> anyway. Um, but, again, witnessing has got to be uh, explained that, well, that's where we start in most cases, is just telling our God stories. 
And then the whole area of apologetics. I know in our church, one of the things, that you heard of the Truth Project? Dale Tackett uh, came out of Focus on the Family. We did that as a whole congregation about four years ago. Just shut down everything else, put everybody in small groups, and went through the Truth Project. It was a little heady for a lot of our folks. I mean, they didn't know how to spell the word anthropology, you know. And Dell talks about those sort of things. But, boy, when you got done, you know what the people said? I feel much more confident defending the faith. We have better answers than those other people do about all these issues of life. Most of them had never thought about the theology of being in the workplace, that God taught us how to be good employees and good employers. Well, we went through that. This is an important theological concept that most Christians should be the most sought-after employees on the planet. Because we know how honest be honest and how to work for our boss's goals and how to set limits that are you know, ethical limits and things like that. Uh, most, most of those people, we live in a dualism now where my job and my school is so separated from my spirituality and my church presence. And, you know, I, I'm sorry. I know you're not to blame, but I had to look at myself and I said, I'm to blame for that. Because I've never taught on how to be a good employee. I've never developed the apologetic of the workplace. Okay, so that's the word. It's bigger. But again, once you've, you've talked about all this stuff, uh, your people start to feel confident in sharing what it means to be a follower of Christ. Um, the second thing is works. And this goes to the uh, whole issue of love, that the world understands that um, that Jesus was a nice guy who liked people, and that if we're going to represent him, we have to do this. And, and here, here is where I had to admit I was terrible at this. I grew up in a, in a context spiritually where we just didn't think about it. We thought that's social gospel, and we discredited it, and we basically handed it to the mainline churches who suddenly I noticed the world saw as much more credible witness than we, we were. Okay, so uh, let me just go through that quick. This is a demonstration of the love of God. Whereas the word is a declaration of the truth of God, this is a demonstration of the love of God. Uh, because God cares for and values all people. The imagio deo, God's image is in every human. And therefore, Christians take care of people. Uh, we are called to be the body of Christ that incarnates his grace, mercy, and love to the world in which we live. It is often the activity of Christ and acts of selfless kindness that opens the door to sharing the gospel. Uh, we now have a food uh, distribution ministry that feeds about 120 families on the second Saturday every month. We give them two weeks of food. Uh, for about tw- We ask them to give $20, and we probably give them $200 worth of food for that. And meat and vegetables and fruit, not just canned stuff, but all kinds of really good food. And, uh, boy, I tell you, the amazing number of people that have been open to the gospel just because, you know, we're there and they come to the church and they, they get, and also we pray for them in the hallway, uh, ask them if they have any prayer needs. Um, it's been wonderful. Uh, James one we're familiar with this religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Notice, uh, there's what I want to call or want to name a consequential understanding in the New Testament of, of service. They understood that 
if you had the Spirit of Christ, you could not help looking around and just loving people and meeting their needs. We know, if you've ever read Chuck Colson's excellent book, uh, The Church, um, you know, he talks about in the early Roman uh, exercise of the church penetrating the Roman culture, what was it that made people stop and look at these people? Two basic big things was one is when the uh, cities would regularly have uh, plagues, uh, all the people who could afford it would just move out of town and go to their country estates to avoid getting sick. But the Christians stayed and really started, in a sense, the first hospitals. And many of the Christians died taking care of the sick people, the poor people. And people just looked at them and go, who are these people? And we have letters, actually, from the day where people are going, these crazy Christ people, he said, they're they're staying and and caring for the sick people. And the other one, of course, he talks about the fact that that the Christians actually went out on the rivers and... uh, because of all the infanticide, you know, people liked to make babies because they were sexually crazy, uh, but they didn't like to keep and raise them. And so many of the babies were thrown into the river to drown. And the Christians would actually go out and net them in and take them home and raise them as their own children. People couldn't believe this. And again, what is it? It's an expression of our Christian understanding that every human being is made in the image of God and therefore has value. Well, people didn't understand where did this kind of sacrificial service and love come from. And uh, it it brought about a hook that drew many of them to say, what is it? And then again, valuing women as opposed to seeing them as property. Uh, Many of the first converts were women for that reason, because they had such a much higher status in the church. And the loving kindness and respect that they were shown there brought them in. Now, you know where this really gets plain is when we hear Jesus teaching and at the end of Matthew, Matthew 25, about the great white throne judgment. And he, you know, he does the thing where he separates the sheep and the goats, and then he says to the sheep, you know, when I was thirsty, you know, you gave me drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And they're perplexed. When did we do all these things? And he says, if you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. Notice that there is in Jesus' eyes a consequential obedience. This is something I think we've missed when we start talking about sanctification, um, is that this is consequential means if I tell you I've been in, if I'm standing next to a swimming pool and say, I just went swimming, and you look me up and down and go, but you're not wet. See, wetness is a consequence of swimming. Well, they understood that service and love to strangers, that forgiving your enemies as well as your friends who might mistreat you was actually consequential. It didn't mean we didn't struggle with it sometimes. That's why John, in 1 John, says, you cannot say you love God and hate your brother. See, I don't know. The language kind of bothers us because we say, well, if a really unsanctified person, in fact, hating your brother in church is pretty common. In fact, we've institutionalized it. Well, they would, they would come into our churches and they go, you know, a lot of your people aren't converted because you cannot say you love God and, and freely opening without anything bothering your conscience. You can't do that and hate your brother. They'd say there's something wrong here with the spiritual condition. 
that make sense? Okay, so this service is not something we do as a um, strategy. If I go out and be nice to people, they'll think nice things about me and come to church. The Bible tells it it's an absolute consequential uh, automism of being saved, of having Christ in you. And then I had to ask myself, what's wrong with me? Because I knew I'd met Jesus, and I knew the Holy Spirit dwelt in me, and I ignored this part of my Christian call, and my church reflected it. And so we went back and said, we're going to become involved in our culture around us, in feeding people and clothing people, and we created a ministry called Love in Action. And we said, some of you, you, here, you want a little benefit of this? Is I found out that there were people that were gifted by the Holy Spirit to do this ministry, but because we didn't in, uh, institutionalize it and, and recognize it, they were frustrated. A lot of them probably left and went where they could use their gifts, leaving us a deficit of this ministry. As soon as we started doing this intentionally, those people started to come back, and the body got more balanced and healthy. But, but you remember when I was talking about you know, that we chose one of the three you know what the long-term impact of that is? You drive the people with the passion for the other two things out of your church and send them elsewhere. And pretty soon, you're just not neglecting that. You're deficit in it. Your body is twisted and imbalanced. And when you start doing all three, the body starts to rebalance itself because people with the compassion-serving gifts start to come back and find something to express those gifts in. And people with the supernatural gifts that are really coming out of their ears. If you let that happen, they'll come back and they'll start to do more and more of it. And people with teaching gifts to teach the word, they'll come back and they'll start to express their gifts. It, it, it brings healthiness. Okay, last one is wonders. And this is to decree the power of God, to display his, his power. And it's not just that he's powerful. This is so important. It's that he is imminent. I, that's one of the reasons I, I forsook the faith was they said God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then I read the book and found out what he used to do. And I figured, let me put those two things together. If that's what God's like and he's the same, but he's not doing it now, how do I know he ever did it? I was too logical for the gospel that was presented to me. But that's where much of our culture is. We train them to think logically, and then we present a confusing gospel. All right, so the decree. We're called to be a channel of God's power and destroy the works of the devil, aren't we? John 7, I love this. Still, many in the crowd put their faith in him, and they said, When Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? And then John 10, Jesus answered the Pharisees, the doubters. I did, I did tell you that, basically, that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, but you didn't believe me. Well, the miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me. I always, I always love to challenge people who are not supernaturalists. Say, if Jesus needed miracles to convince people, how are you doing without any? John 14, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father's in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. I'm going to send you the same spirit that I'm working with. 
the Holy Spirit. That, I find that to be the most challenging verse in the New Testament, that I should be doing the same in greater works. So I ignore it and just pass it by. Okay. <laughs> Mark 16. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he said, this is that controversial verse at the end of Mark. He was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. And then the disciples went out. And what did they do? They went out and they did the word and the works. They served people, they loved people, and they preached the gospel. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. In other words, you do your part, I'll do mine. And I love, there's one other verse I found. This is really good. I love uh, Acts 14.3, which is a, another statement of this actually working in the ministry of the, of the apostles. Paul and Barnabas are in Iconium. Uh, Paul and Barnabas in Iconium, uh, this is Acts 14.3. It says, so Paul and Barnabas spent a considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord. I love that, for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. So uh, if I could be so bold as to say, I believe his doing more signs and wonders, in a sense, is predicated on us faithfully doing witness and works. Does that make sense? I, mean, I think we all believe that. Uh, and I, that's why, finally, you know, I, I tell people, pray for anything that moves that looks sick. You know, we, we have a, in fact, in our value statement, we have, it is our goal that every person in the harbor become naturally supernatural. And what I mean by that is that we got to get over the spookiness quotient of being a non-supernatural culture so that doing supernatural stuff and praying for miracles is as normal. I always use this phrase. said, I want you to feel praying for the sick to be healed is as normal as filling your car with gas. I want to, the idea that you could receive a prophetic word from God on any given day as normal as going to the ATM and getting some money. So you all know how to do that. You do it without thinking. I said, we should be at that same place in terms of the use of the gifts. And not just a special stage level group of leaders, but every Christian should have that kind of comfort level with the supernatural. That takes a lot of intentional training and, uh, and, and preaching and teaching. Again, that's a pastoral concern then. All right. Um, that's, that's the premise. And uh, I want to just, I want to close with one story. Um, when I was preparing this, I got this word too. I, I don't know, just throw it out. I felt like the Holy Spirit said to me, get over your juvenile identity. In other words, the identity you had of yourself because of the movement through which you came to Christ. We are all imprinted with an identity and we tend to defend our first the identity of the organization or the church that we came to Christ through. And I feel like the Lord's saying to us, get over that juvenile identity. Be your own man and woman of God. Grow up. It's, it's like when you're a child in your father's house, you identify with everything he does. I always thought the gas station my dad went to was the only place to buy good gas. The bank my father, I thought, why are there other banks? My dad chose this bank. It must be the only good bank in town. Then I grew up and realized there were choices. And I had to forsake the identity of my father's house, you know, 
Does this make sense what I'm saying? And, he said, and, 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 and get out of the box that I was born into and see there's far, far, far more that God's doing in the kingdom, and I need to get some of it. I'll tell you. Oh, that'd probably be too controversial to say. <laughs> I, I'm a big fan of Greg Kokel. I don't know if anybody you know who Greg Kokel is. He is an apologist out in um, California. He runs a ministry called Stand to Reason. The best trainer of people giving a defense of the gospel I know. Just gives him practical training. He's not a charismatic. In fact, he doesn't like the whole charismatic thing. But I've had him into the church. I, I'm going to really stand. I like Bill Hybels. Bill Hybels is the greatest trainer of leaders in this country today, in my opinion. And I, I, we do his seminar, and he trains our leaders to lead. By the way, he also, I, I believe, has the Holy Spirit. And, uh, in fact, I had him prophesy over me once at a conference. Don and I were looking, and we went up afterwards, which I very rarely do, and I just said, would you pray for us? We're trying to make a big decision. And he prayed a nice evangelical prayer. And I said, well, thank you. And we started to walk away. And he ran after us and grabbed us and said, wait a second, I think the Lord's just told me something. And he shared with me. There's a prejudice that we have against other movements that's unfounded. And, and, And this is, talk about getting out of the box. God has done stuff in other movements that we need and if we don't get out of the box and go get it and learn from them, and let, let me tell you this last story. In grasping the triangle, there is healing for the body. I'll tell you this last story. I was driving to work on one of the first, the first week I took over at the harbor. And as I said, this church had been, uh, sadly, um, it had gone through some very difficult times and it also had a history of being absolutely cut off from the rest of the churches in our community. In fact, many of the, I think, other pastors and churches saw it almost as a cult because it had been so separatistic and arrogant in its spirituality. So here I am, the new guy, and I, today is the day when the ministerium is meeting in September, or January it was, for the first time. And I remember I was not really looking forward to this meeting that much because I'm driving there. I said, these people aren't going to be happy to see me. I was, you know, t- explaining. Do you ever explain things to God because he doesn't understand? I said, these people aren't going to be happy. I said, what am I supposed to say? Because you know what happens at pastor's meeting? They Everybody goes around and introduces themselves. I said, one of them is going to look right at me and go, what kind of a church is that? And that's the look on their face. I said, I just know it. It's just going to happen. And, and the Holy Spirit said to me, I took, he said, I'll tell you. You tell them, you are an evangelical, spirit-filled, social action church. And I remember going, is that possible? That was my reaction. I don't think I've ever heard of one of those. And then I got really honest, and I said, you know, Lord, we're not, we don't have any social action. I mean, we're just bad at that. And he, and he didn't say anything back, you know. Ugh, yeah, yeah. He didn't disagree with me, that was for sure. So anyway, I get to this meeting at noon, and we're all sitting around munching our sandwiches out of our brown bags, and Sure enough, the guy in charge goes, well, why don't we all introduce ourselves? There were some new people here. <laughs> and so everybody goes, I'm Jim Anderson from the harbor, or, uh, you know, from this church. It was named something different at that point. And uh, 
and, and everybody did there. And sure enough, a guy from a big old mainline church crossed the table from me, looked at me and goes, can I ask you something? What kind of a church is that? Verbatim. And everybody in the room kind of sits back and goes. And I said, thank you, Jesus, that you told me what to say. And I remember I said, well, I said, we're not there yet, but my goal is that we would become an evangelical, spirit-filled, social action church. And then just hearing myself say it, I said, but to be honest with you, in social action area, we are really, really deficient. I said, we don't really know what we're doing. I said, we're, and then out of me came this statement. I said, we're going to have to learn how to do that from some of you who are so good at it. And, and this guy, the guy who asked me the question, he just melted. And he said back to me, he said, you know something, to be honest with you, we're not very good at that spirit-filled stuff. <laughs> he says, we're going to have to learn that from you. And the atmosphere of the room absolutely shifted. And we had some, a couple of years um, that were really wonderful in terms of fellowship in that, in that group. So we got a couple of minutes left. Um, anybody got to just kind of build on this or your thoughts on some of this application-wise? If you want to. had a really couple of good questions at the break, so. And that's the, that's the grace component where, like I said, you know, for me, when you have a vision statement, and, and I'm a great believer in vision statements, value, value statements, philosophy of ministry statements that you expose everybody to as they come. In other words, you don't get to decide how we're going to do church at the harbor. You come in learn what we're called to do as a team, how we're called to do it philosophically, and then we ask you, do you feel God's calling you to join the team and do church this way? I don't want anybody coming in here and saying, well, I know how to do church my way, and I like your children's ministry, so I'm going to come in here and screw everything up for you. Uh, we, don't, we don't like that. So when they sign on and say, we, I feel called to harbor, they're signing on to our vision, values, and philosophy. They're adopting those, and we make that crystal clear. And one of the things is that we are a safe, our thing is we are a safe place of, of protection and provision where people can find um, uh, wholeness, balance, and destiny in Jesus Christ. And we explain all that. And uh, part of that is this whole commitment that we exist for those not yet present. And so when I ever go to a newcomer's class, I always ask you know, newcomers, how did you find the harbor? And they tell how they got there the first time. And I say, what did you experience? And um, what I'm doing is... This is the first church I've felt comfortable at in my whole life. I feel like you guys just took me where I was at. You know, and every time they, somebody says, I go, cha-ching, you know. That's what, that's what a vision statement is for, is so that you know when you win, is you know when you accomplish something. So it's, it was a safe place for you. Oh, yeah, I've just, everybody's just really been open and loved me since I came. 
um, just sharing your testimony, I think it demystifies so much of it. Yeah. If you can say, do you have a, have you interfaced with God on some level? Can you tell that story? And I think so much of it then, that opens the door. It demystifies the, you know, all of the, uh, all the dynamics of what I'm supposed to know to witness, to evangelize. It's, it's, it's really right at that level. So thanks. I just kind of yeah. heard that again. And like, it's just not that crazy be able to do this. Yeah, it's so true. We've been talking about the three different relationships, even in terms of being a healthy Christian, of uh, in, inward relationships with the body of Christ, upward with God and outward to the world. And we've talked about that in terms of a triangle, which I'll just put up there because we have it. And... Uh, so thank you for using triangles. We feel that triangles are anointed because uh, there's three sides and the trinity and all that. Anyway, but it feels like the, this triangle that, so up, in, and out, we're really good at up, worship stuff, and in, church, fellowship. But this out portion is the one where we get stuck on how do we flesh out the great commandment, the great commission, and the great concern in every direction. And it feels like this is the corner the right-hand corner of out. This is what out looks like. It's using the word works and wonders in a balanced way to take the church out because we tend to be pretty good at up and in, yep. right? So it's, yeah. That's good. That's good. Run, Jim, run. Oh. Um. It's not really much. When he was sharing about the testimony, uh, really I saw something. That's the key for God's kingdom. I can give a personal experience. Uh, I was just to get new hired at St. Martin Pierce. was at 2008. I took my flight from Charlotte to Amsterdam. I sit closer to a wonderful. I didn't know. In the plane, they always put you to somebody who doesn't know. Mm-hmm. And um, I, when I get hired, the people were saying, I have been here for many years, working with Samaritan Press 20 years. I never get a chance to meet um, Billy Graham, something like that. That what come to me when I was sitting in the plane how we met and we spent almost two hours, I say, thank you, Jesus, for the opportunity. He heard. He looked at me. Who are you? I told him, yes, I'm a man of God and uh, I work for this ministry and this and this. You know what he told me? Why God can put a man like you closer to a person like me? I asked him why. He told him that I can't have a time to talk about Jesus because I'm leaving my home to go to kill myself. Because my wife took all my children away and she accused me for so and so. Now I doesn't have life, so I decide to leave America to go to somewhere in Europe to take drugs and to kill my, myself. I told him, God loves you. And he cared about your family more than yourself. 
For him, he said that, how come I can hear about Jesus and I've been troubling everybody I'm talking to is telling me to go to get legal, legal counsel, legal advice, legal this, so I can resolve my problem in my, in my family. But I just understand that if I get Jesus' peace in my heart, it will resolve uh, everything. That I want to say that the testimony doesn't need to take the Bible. Doesn't, but the testimony is a big change agent for God's kingdom. Well, let's, uh, can I close in prayer? Or? Yes. The, 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 this looks very similar to a diagram of culture that I used from Paul Hebert. Um, practices and products come out of beliefs, feelings, and values. Mm-hmm. So then we need truth, love, and holiness. So does holiness fit um, in, the, in the diagram? So it would be there instead of power. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this one. I'm just uh, wondering if there's a place in the diagram. I don't know. Well, in a lot of ways, you you talk about consequential. I think holiness is, holiness, remember, doesn't mean being good. It means being focused. You know, something that's set aside for God only. What, What those guys would argue that if you knew Christ by his very presence in you, you're motivated to serve him and be set aside for his use. So in a lot of ways, what we've done is we've tried to conform people, I think, who aren't converted from the outside in. Instead of insisting on conversion and then equipping them and feeding them and feeding this passion for holiness to be Christ-like that's in them. And I think for us pastors, we need to kind of take a serious look at that. One thing, it's much more dependent on God. I think it would make us pray more. And, and say, God, work in these people's lives and show yourself to them. But, yeah, I mean, holiness, I think, in a sense, embodies and wraps itself around the whole thing. So I'm set apart for God. That's what holiness means. Let me, let me just close with this. You know, we all read the First Corinthians 13 at weddings, you know, love chapter. The first three verses are absolutely devastating. Where, and this is what he says. And again, go back to my categories of the evangelical baptistic cessationist church, the mainline church, and then the Pentecostal charismatic church with their favorite little parts of this. And here he says, and I'm just going to capsulize. He says, if you're into, you know, speaking in tongues, and he names, he names three gifts, the gift of faith, tongues, and prophecy in this little section. And he says this, if you're into this stuff, but you don't have agape, which I go back to the central thing about healthy community has agape dripping all over it. You are noisy and irritating. (laughs) And there's much of the rest of the body of Christ that would say, amen. You guys are just noisy and irritating, talking about your gifts all the time. But then he's an equal opportunity nailer. He talks about deep understanding and deep knowledge. You know, the mainline church is into very deep theology and all this stuff. And he says, if you've got all that, but you don't have agape, you don't love the world. You don't have a passion for the ones who Christ died for. What does he say? He says, you're nothing. You're a zero in the kingdom element. I, I like that now because he's talking about somebody else. And then, and then uh, he, finally he says, and if you give all that you have to the poor, 
But you, you know, now we're talking about the mainliners who just give, 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 give. But you don't have love. Again, he just says you're you're nothing. He said you've gained nothing. You've gained zero. In fact, you're not. Maybe you're not even going to heaven if you don't believe the gospel, and you're just serving people out of some other motivation. I don't know. And uh, and then he really hits it. He says, in fact, if you give your body up to be burned, if you become a martyr. That's sort of like the Hall of Fame. You get special little white gowns in heaven, it says so in Revelations. <laughs> Martyr dresses. But, but it says but the same thing. It says even if you give yourself up, but you don't love what he loves and give yourselves to the purpose of the gospel on earth, he says you gain nothing. That's sobering to me. So, Lord God, we just say again, Fill us with a kind of love that's pragmatic and energetic and transformational, that gets us up out of our boxes, that makes us learn what we don't know, that makes us go to learn it from people we don't even like sometimes. Lord God, help us forsake our prejudices and everything else that keeps us from being truly effective and following the plan that you've laid out. We confess today that we believe Your plan, done your way, in this holistic way, will penetrate every situation that we are faced with here on earth. Because you do not fail. And as the scripture we just talked about says, love never fails. So Lord God, give us your heart and make us wise in these days. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Amen. All right. Um, In two minutes, we're going to be taking our lunch break. Um, one thing that Jim didn't specifically mention, but I'm going to mention on his behalf for you to ask him about, is one of the um, very pragmatic engines of, uh, or ways in which this has been expressed at the harbor is through the use of the Alpha Course. And you've been using the Alpha Course how long now? 11 years. 11 years. And you run it? Three times a year. Three times a year. Every year. Yeah. And that has been... Yeah, and the the reason is I've got the reason is is that a lo- the ninety percent of our people who aren't evangelists they're good at inviting but they're not good closers. They can invite people to Alpha, and Alpha is a primary wonderful way. And in the middle of Alpha, there's a Holy Spirit retreat, and we send a prophet along, and the guy just reads their mail, and they get impressed with the fact that God's real, and they accept Jesus through. So they get the Word in Alpha, they get the ex- Holy Spirit experience. And they get brought into community uh, because Alpha is a small group-based community thing. So anyway, it's great. We like it. Yep. And we have found Alpha very effective here as well. And so just want to encourage you to consider that. And if you want more information, just you can connect with me. My daughter actually is the national coordinator for partnerships and training for Alpha. So I can give an email and I can get you hooked up to the source to get anything you need related to Alpha. And it honestly is. Hugely credible and helpful. All right. Um, we're going to be taking our lunch break. Again, uh, this food has been prepared for us in-house, so you can uh, stay right here. Um, if you are willing and able to make a free will donation, you are welcome to do so. If you are.